Good morning, Four Corners Church. It is a blessing to be gathered in some way here this morning. Uh, as Mike indicated earlier, we have several folks here. We have several folks sitting in here in our worship space and then folks out in the lobby and in various rooms throughout the building. And then we have those of you who will be watching this tomorrow as you, uh, as you watch it online for, uh, for, the, for the time being. That's what we're doing. But next week, we are very excited that we will be gathering on Sunday as an entire congregation. So I'm not sure exactly where to be looking this morning as I'm preaching, uh, but there are a few folks here. Uh, I'll be preaching too, and then the camera will continue to keep you in mind, those of you watching as well. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. You know, it is, it is both sobering and exciting to preach God's Word after singing that song. It is sobering because it reminds me that this is the very Word of God. What we are going to read and what's going to be explained and what's going to be received and applied is the very Word of God. And I pray that you come to this with the same sober mindset that, that we, are, we are serious as we come to God's holy word. Is it, it is exciting to see what God will do even now here among us gathered throughout this building and those of you at home as God's word is, is uh, preached and read as we sit underneath God's word. It is exciting to think what will the Holy Spirit do this day through this text, through this sermon. As we continue through Romans, we've recently been looking at the bad news that must come before the good news. Yes, the gospel. Gospel means good news. And that is Paul's concern. As he writes the letter to the Romans, as he writes letters to various churches, in the first century, as he goes and, and works among these churches, as he goes initially into the synagogues to preach to the, to the Jews first, as he gathers co-workers around him, as he mentors his true children in the, in the faith, people like Titus and Timothy, as he does all of this work, Paul's concern is to proclaim the good news, the gospel. That is the theme of this epistle to the Romans, but the good news can only be understood and appreciated if we consider the bad news. And so Paul begins the, the main body of his letter with a pretty thorough explication of the bad news. Fallen, humanity, universally sinful, under God's judgment, Without excuse. No excuse. As we said last week, no human being will be able to stand before God and say, but God, why didn't you do this or show me this? No excuse. We are under, as a race, as the human race, the wrath of God. This is Paul's topic of discussion from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way, yes, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. Quite a bit of material here, 
to unsettle us from complacency about sin, from a lack of realism about the state of the world, the condition of the human heart, the condition of every society on the planet, every neighborhood, every family, every individual soul being placed upon the table here and inspected and the verdict given, condemnation because of sin. And at the end of chapter 1, Paul's focus is primarily on the Gentiles. That's where we find ourselves now. This section, verse 18, uh, at the end of chapter 1 to verse 32, this is primarily focused on the Gentiles. It has in view mainly the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish peoples, the pagan world. And in chapter 2, Paul will turn to consider the Jews as well, so that he can say in chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one, All are under sin. So what's the situation on the ground? As we've seen it described so far. We come now today to verse 22. And let's just pause for a moment and consider what's the situation on the ground that leads into verse 22. Human beings have knowledge of God. Because they perceive his invisible attributes, Paul says, they perceive his invisible attributes, those characteristics of God, those attributes of God which we cannot see. God is spirit. God is invisible. But those invisible attributes are made known, are shown, are displayed through the visible creation. This knowledge of the invisible God through the visible works of his hands is something all people have. Instead of responding to this knowledge with praise and gratitude towards God, all human beings suppress it or hold it down. All human beings go to any nation on the planet, go to any group of people, meet any single person, and this is what you will find. Not praising and giving God thanks, but instead suppressing and holding down the truth. And in this failure to honor and thank God, in this suppression and rejection of the truth, their thoughts become futile and their hearts become darkened, blinded, void of understanding. Imagine a person blind. Walking through a space. Sometimes, for those, of, uh, for those of us who have the blessing of sight in the middle of the night, we get up to go use the restroom or do something or whatever. And we sometimes are, even though we, we've only seen darkness, if the room is particularly dark, we are moving around, trying to find our way, bumping, as I often do, our knees on the edge of the bed or whatever else. We, we cannot see physically. And that is a picture of what man is spiritually apart from God. Blinded. The eyes of his heart darkened. Can't see the truth because he has suppressed it in unrighteousness. That is the situation on the ground. That's what's really going on in our world. Any headline in the news that unsettles us. Any outburst that we see 
from ourselves, any sin that we can pinpoint in someone else, it all goes back to this. So what follows? As Paul describes it here, what follows from this rejection of the truth, from this failure to give God praise and thanks? What grows up out of that like a tree? That is the question that we are going to focus on today. And the answer is this, the replacement of God. Idolatry, worship of idols, false religion. The rejection of the truth is followed by the replacement of God. Let me say that again. The rejection of the truth, which is what we looked at last week, is followed by the replacement of God. Martin Luther captures the logic of this entire section, verse 18 to 32, as he reflects on what ingratitude towards God, a lack of thanks to God, does to one's heart and life. Tracing it back, as Paul uh, presents it here, tracing it back to this comment about a failure to give God thanks and praise, Martin Luther is reflecting on how that then creates a domino effect in one's heart and in one's life, as he describes it here. Oh, how great and evil ingratitude is. It produces desire for vain things, and this again produces blindness. And blindness produces idolatry. And idolatry leads to a whole deluge of vices. Conversely, so now let's come at it from a different angle, from the opposite direction. Conversely, gratitude preserves love for God, and so the heart remains attached to him and is enlightened. Filled with light, he worships only the living God, and such true worship is followed immediately by a whole host of virtues. The difference between the believer the unbeliever. At his core or her core, most fundamentally, in the inner man, inner being, as Paul will describe in Romans 7, as we find elsewhere, there is gratitude towards God in the heart of every Christian, not in the heart of the unbeliever. But I want to make an application here before we jump in, and I, I started to do this last week, just an implication for us. This is the first principle of all your sinning. Where you find sin in your life. I want you to think right now about the things that you've been confessing to God. The things maybe you confessed even this morning during our confession of sin. The things that you are troubled about your own life or your own soul. The things you do that you don't want to do. The things you don't, don't do that you want to do. The sins of your heart, of your life. I want you to see that this ingratitude is the first principle of all our sinning. This is, catch this, catch this, this is so important. This is the idol maker in our hearts. Ingratitude is itself the idol maker in our hearts. We can trace it back. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in that verse, Paul says, 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Christianity 101 is give thanks to God. Give thanks to God because where there is the absence of gratitude towards God in Christ Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Christ Jesus, where that grows cold or dry or empty, there will be all kinds of idolatry and sin coming up into our lives. Yes, even the life of a Christian. We sow to the flesh when we do not give thanks to God. We sow to the Spirit when in all things we recognize what we have is from Him. So the title for today's sermon is God Replaced. God Replaced. And we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, as I've already said. And uh, we will not be spending time on verse 24. So the way I've chosen to structure this is I want to highlight idolatry as Paul describes it in these verses. Verses 22 to 25. Verse 24 will go with what we see next week, which are the consequences of idolatry as we begin to look at that. And we'll take verse 24 considered there with verses 26 and following. God replaced And this idolatry, this replacement of God, is is considered from three angles. So these are our three points for today. We'll consider this idolatry, this replacement of God, from three angles. First, image for glory. Second, falsehood for truth. And thirdly, creature for creator. So that's the way Paul describes it here. That's what we will spend our time looking at. Let me go ahead and get you to stand wherever you are, those who are here and those at home listening to this tomorrow, which for you is today. Uh, Go ahead and stand with me, if you would, for the reading of God's holy word. Verses 22 to 25. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And creeping things. Hmm. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for His blessing on this time, and that He would use His Word to transform our hearts. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of you, just as we hear the words, every promise of your word, we are in awe that you have revealed yourself. You are the revealer. You reveal yourself generally in creation. 
You reveal yourself specifically through your word, which bears witness to your word incarnate, the Son of God. Father, we just praise you this day. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven and earth and sea. You've made the angels. All exists by your hand and for your glory. God, we exist for you. We exist to praise you forever. As Paul describes in Ephesians 2, we are eternal trophies to your praise, to the praise of your glorious grace. God, we pray today we would freshly appreciate the gospel that has saved us, by which you have saved us, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Thank you, Father, for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the risen King who reigns in power and who will return. Come, Lord Jesus, as we see our world, as we think about things going on all around us, we just, we raise our hands to you, O God, and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We look forward to the day, Jesus Christ, when we will see you. We long for you, Lord. We long to see your face. We long to grab hold of your hands, to wrap our arms around your neck, the God-man. We long to reign with you, Christ Jesus, in a new heaven and a new earth. We long for a day when there will be no need for the sun, for the glory of God and of the Lamb will shine forth everywhere. Father, we pray that now we would be strong Christians, that we would walk according to your word, that we would pursue your kingdom and your righteousness, that we would love you above ourselves, that we would love our neighbor above ourselves, that we would die daily, that we would live entirely for your purposes God, we pray that as we see our old nature in a mirror this morning, we pray that you would cause us to hate sin all the more, cause us to, by your grace, uproot idols in our hearts, in our lives, that you would bring transformation today through your word. We ask, Father God, in Jesus' name, amen. So we begin... This morning with the image for glory replacement. Image put in place of glory. That is the initial contrast that Paul brings out in these verses. Look with me at verses 22 to 23 as we walk our way through this text. This is what Paul says. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals 
and creeping things. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The world, humanity, apart from God, just patting ourselves on the back for so many things. We are quite proud of ourselves as human beings. Where the world sees wisdom, however, God sees folly. God looks down from heaven, and while human beings are clapping their hands, praising one another for our so-called wisdom, God sees folly, foolishness. Where the world sees enlightenment, God sees darkness. This is, these are the eyes of the living God. As he looks out over the earth, that is what God sees. As man glories in himself, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And this goes all the way back to the beginning. This glorying in human wisdom goes all the way back to the beginning of the human story where Paul begins here claiming to be wise, they became fools. In our speculations and vain thoughts about reality, in our casting off God, sweeping God off, throwing Him aside, and coming up with our own philosophical systems, our own view of reality, our own understanding or definition of the good life. In all of this, we as human beings are quite proud of our supposed accomplishments. But as we see here, the result of all of this so-called wisdom is idolatry. Replacing God with other objects of worship. One of the things we need to understand as human beings is that we are worshiping creatures. One of the things that clearly distinguishes us from the animals. We are worshiping creatures by nature. Anthropologists and sociologists will go back and try to discover sort of the, the sociological or psychological origin of religion or the essence of religion. But the truth is that we are this by nature. Any museum in the world with its relics and artifacts and antiquities will show you clearly that this is the case. Where there are human beings, there is worship. And this is because we are made in the image of God. To know God, to commune with God, as the Westminster Catechism says, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we were made for. It's part of the essence of human nature. We were given the capacity to reason and to relate in order that we might contemplate God and love Him. That's why we have minds with which we think, and that is why we have a heart to love, is so that we could love God. 
We cannot simply, as human beings, shut down religiously. And that's one of the reasons why, as we talk about apologetics, apologetics is not about neutrality. It's not about coming to an issue and casting off bias so that the Christian is called upon to come forward and cast off his belief in God, his belief in the self-authenticating word of God. He, he casts that off so that he can speak with the supposed neutral observer, the neutral unbeliever. No one is neutral. We all are worshipers by nature. We cannot shut down religiously. We either worship God or something else. It is an either or by necessity. And I want to make a quick, draw out a quick implication here for us. Since we have so many young families in our church with children, I just want you to consider this parent. A big part of parenting is helping our kids to understand and to see what they are worshiping. As you think about the sins of your children, as you correct them, as we lovingly correct them and discipline them, consider this, that every act of sin that we see in them has at its root false religion. Worship of something either than God. And so our objective as parents is to help our children understand in, in all of their sinning, in all of our shepherding and disciplining of them, is that they are worshipers by nature and that they are worshiping something other than their maker. In so doing, we are able to point them to the Savior. We show them the idolatry of their hearts, that it's not merely the acts on the outside, but it is a, a heart of idolatry for which they need a Redeemer and the Spirit to transform them and give them a new heart. And parents, as we continue to think here about the family, parents, what are your Idols. Or let me ask the question this way. What do your kids see you bowing down to? They may hear one thing from you, but what do they see? What do they see in your life? The ordering of your life. What you give your thoughts to and your time to. What idols do they daily watch you prostrate yourself and bow down to? You say the Lord is your God. But what does life really look like? You know, I'm convinced we talk about all of this conversation. Why are so many walking away from the church there's so many ways that we can come at that question. Why so many children growing up and going off to college and walking away from the church? We ultimately know that we can do everything in our power to raise our children and they, they, do not, they may not choose to follow Christ. They may not be reborn by God's Spirit, His sovereign grace. We recognize that. We recognize that there may be many different factors involved for why on a mass scale, many are growing up in Christian homes and walking away from the faith. But I want to submit to you that perhaps nothing is more potent 
in fueling this mass exodus than the fact that our kids see our idolatrous hearts. They see us bowing down to the gods of pleasure and leisure and work and money and success and performance. They hear us saying Christ, but they see another God in his place. Make no mistake, they see. They see. Our God is either God or it is something else. God's word, God's mission, God's promises in times of trial. Is this what they see us clinging to in our homes? God's word is a priority. God's mission is a priority. Including God's church. And God's promises holding us fast in times of trial, in times of difficulty, that our hope is in God. Our hope is not in, man, this might improve, or I might get better, or circumstances may change. Our hope is in the living God. In our worrying and complaining, in our, even in our delighting, they see our hearts, brothers and sisters. So many children here, so many parents, May God give us grace to worship him alone. So as Paul describes it here, we have a great exchange that takes place. A substitution of one object of worship for another. And here in verse 23, we see that image. We see that image is substituted for glory. And Paul gives us in this three layers of contrast. First, a mere image is put in place of glory. Now just look, just look at those words. Paul is stacking it up here to show the absurdity of it and to show the wickedness of it. Just let's contrast each of these elements. First, image, the, just the word image, the idea of image and glory. Glory in Hebrew basically means weighty. It is, yes, God's majesty, God's splendor. That which brings awe in worshipers. But, but at its core is this image of, of being full of substance. Weighty. Glory is anything but shadowy. It is weighty substance. What Paul begins with here is the contrast between infinite weight versus nothingness. Glory versus image. Charles Hodge describes it this way. They exchange the substance for the image. The real substance of God's glory covered over, replaced with an image, an idol. Second part of this contrast, the second layer of this is we have a corruptible object that is put in place of an incorruptible being. A mere image of a mortal, perishable, or corruptible. You could translate that either of those ways. A mortal, perishable, corruptible creature put in place of the glory of the immortal, imperishable, incorruptible God. What remains forever versus what perishes like a flower in the field. A mere breath 
human life described as a mere breath. How much more? How much more a four-legged animal, a bird, or a creeping thing? The immortal, eternal being versus that which perishes in a second. Wow. Third, God who is above, who has glory, who is incorruptible, is replaced with creatures as low as you can go. All the way down to creeping things. This is amazing. So to sum up, you have the real, substantial, weighty glory of the imperishable God replaced with the mere image of corruptible things going all the way down to what lives in or slithers upon the dirt. That's what we've done. That's what humanity has done collectively across time and across space. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And notice what stands at the front of the list. Oh yeah, mortal man. If the creeping thing reminds us of the folly and absurdity and ghastly nature of this idolatry, the, the, word, the words mortal man at the beginning remind us what idolatry is really about. Worship of self. Oh, how much man loves himself. A worshiper of self. Glorying in self. Thanking self for all that he is and does. Humans worship themselves. Why is it that human beings love naturalism so much? It's not because the created world points toward naturalism, meaning there is nothing beyond what we can sense with our senses, that the natural word is all, world is all there is. Why does man, have you ever thought about this, why does man love naturalism so much? Because it is in naturalism that we have scientism, which says that science is the be-all and end-all, that that is, that is where, how we come to know. And, and why does man love scientism so much? Because man loves himself and when there's nothing but nature and science is all, the mind of man is everything. Rationalism, empiricism, the, the, the looking at things and figuring it out, and man just figures it out for himself. Oh, how great man is. The glory of man. It's not that the world points to evolution. It is that evolution props up man's worship of self. So we see here image put in place of glory. But now let's turn to another aspect of this idolatry as we come to our second point, falsehood for truth. And remember, all of these things are synonymous in one respect. But what I'm trying to do here, I think Paul is doing, is he's capturing various aspects or facets of this idolatry that he's introducing and explaining. So here, a second aspect or facet of this is falsehood for truth. As I said earlier, we will come back to verse 24 next week when we consider the consequences of idolatry. So let's look now at the first part of verse 25 as we consider falsehood for truth. First part of verse 25 says this, They exchanged the truth about God for a 
lie for a lie. Here we see that in addition to replacing glory with image, idolatry involves replacing truth with falsehood, the truth with a lie. Another angle with which we can look at this. One commentator, Thomas Schreiner, says the fundamental truth of the universe is that God exists and that he should be worshipped and served and his name should be praised. This is truth. Most fundamental reality and truth of the universe. This is the truth that is suppressed and replaced with a lie. I want to read a couple texts to you now from the prophets, particularly from Jeremiah. Listen to the way Jeremiah describes idolatry. 13.25, Jeremiah, this is your lot, the portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. We put our trust in our idols, but they are not trustworthy. We trust in them. Idols are by nature something that we trust in, something that we cling to and we love, but it's something that we trust in. Our hope is there. That's how we're going to be okay. This idol. Why? Why can they not be trusted? Jeremiah 10, 14. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false and there is no breath in them. Why? Why are they not trustworthy? Because they don't exist. They're not living. They're false. They're, 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 they are not. God is. They are not. They are false. Because they are not what they purport to be. They are lifeless. They are without breath. They are a lie because they can't be trusted. And they can't be trusted because they have no life. And it's interesting in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. How Paul describes the, the conversion of the Thessalonians. He says, he says that they turned. Listen to the language he uses. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Do you notice that? He uses both of those adjectives to describe God. He's the living and true God. His, his truth is connected to his reality. He is. He lives. When we pray to God, he hears us. God is, is there. Oh, we, we have family worship, and I talk to my kids and say, you know, when we're praying, we are talking to God. God, right now when we pray here gathered together, we're talking to the living God. He is. Oh, we just get so routine, don't we? We forget that he really, really is. Jeremiah 16, 19. Oh Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you, Shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, listen, Jeremiah is prophesying the nations coming to God. We're part of that. And this is what they, we will say or do say. Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies. 
worthless, worthless things in which there is no profit. No profit. Also, Jeremiah 2.11, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. They are a lie because they are without worth or profit. So you see that. They are a lie because they cannot be trusted. They're not trustworthy. They can't be trustworthy. They're not trustworthy because they don't live. And because they don't live, there's no profit. There's no worth. In some ways, Jeremiah's language is very pragmatic. What folly. Oh, what folly. What a pit you are in, unbeliever. What a pit you are in, in your darkness. And all these lies, these idols, these empty and lifeless substitutes for God are ultimately deceptions from the father of lies. Remember, when we talk about lie, when we talk about falsehood, that which is not true, we must go back to Satan. Jesus does. John 8, verse 44, talking with the religious leaders who boast in being children of Abraham, this is what Jesus says to them. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And listen to this language Jesus uses. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Satan is a big lie. Er, he really is. He exists. But he is lie through and through. From top to bottom, inside and out. Jesus goes on to say, when he lies, which is always, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. For Satan to breathe is to be a liar. He, he, everything he is and does is a lie. This is the one. This is the one who prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. This is the one, a liar, the father of lies, a liar through and through. Since idolatry is the most fundamental lie of all, it is satanic by nature. All false religion, satanic by nature. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. What pagans sacrifice they offer to demons, Paul says. Yes, from one angle, from the human angle, it is ingratitude and lack of praise that it lies at the root of all idol worship. But it is also a real devil with real demons. And the worship offered to these so-called gods is praise and worship given to demons. Those who hated God's glory and were cast out of heaven. So, to the unbeliever, turn, as the Thessalonians did, from these lies to the living and true God. You will die in your lies apart from Christ. It will never get better. Unbelievers fear death, but they should fear much more what happens after death. It is not the end. And many have woken up to that reality. 
the moment their heart stopped beating, and their brain stopped working, their soul lived on in hell. Turn. Turn from these lies, these deceptions, and turn to the yes, living, and yes, true God who is. And believer, Christian, what unprofitable lies are you propping up in your own life? What idols are you feeding? What lies are you feeding? Turn. Once again, today, turn from those idols to the living God. From those lies to the one who is true. As we come to the end of our sermon for today, to the end of our passage, I want you to see the third aspect of this idolatry that Paul draws out here, and that is creature for creator. Glory replaced by image. Truth replaced by falsehood. Creator replaced with the creature. Look at the end of verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Earlier, We considered the great contrast between the glory of the immortal God and the mortal corruptible creature, but now we turn to the creatures themselves. Paul comes at it from the the image versus glory, now angle. Now he's coming at it from the creator versus creature angle. These creatures become the objects of worship, adoration, and service. Just think, as you've seen throughout the world, as you've heard about throughout the world, entire religious systems, ceremonies, priesthoods, and temples have been built by human beings to glorify creatures who are supposed to be under their dominion. Think about the perversion of this as we talk about perversion later. Think about the perversion of this, that God made man over the creatures. And throughout history, Now we find that man builds temples to lizards and snakes and crocodiles, hawks and bulls and so forth. Those over which we ought to have dominion become our gods. Mm. Psalm 106, verse 20. You can just hear the sadness in the psalmist. Heart, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Travesty. Egypt, for example, as I mentioned last week, had Apis, the bull god, Ubastus, the cat goddess, Hathor, the cow goddess, Opet, the hippopotamus goddess, including others such as hawks and crocodiles, and the Egyptians were not alone in this. You see all kinds of creature worship. And this is putting man aside, other creatures all throughout the world. The worship and service which we owe to our eternal, infinite, glorious creator who has given us life is given instead 
to creatures such as these. But before you arrogantly cast judgment on the Egyptians, oh, it's easy. It's easy to look at those silly Egyptians, those silly Assyrians or Persians or Greeks or whoever else, those, those silly Romans or whoever else, to point at, at those, or even today, throughout the world where there is this kind of idolatry, these physical images. It's easy to arrogantly cast judgment on those people, to laugh at them with their creaturely gods. Just consider all the gods we worship, all the gods you worshiped before God saved you. Before he graciously reached down and pulled you from the bottom of the sea, dead in your trespasses and sins. All the deities that you stacked up there on your windowsill and bowed down to every single day of your life from the time you were old enough to reason. All of our material gods, even those that we sinfully bow down to today, all of our material gods, our worship of pleasure, power, and our own name. We were reading recently at home the story of the Tower of Babel. Probably one of the best images for something that we can relate to. How much those people gathered at the Tower of Babel to build their tower to heaven wanted to make a name for themselves. Oh, the glory of me. The glory of me. That's what they were after. And in our social media saturated culture, the glory of me is so present everywhere we look. Glory of my name. Forget hallowing the name of God. Hallow my name. It's about my glory. Not God's glory. We are no different from those descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth who gathered in Mesopotamia to build a ridiculous tower to the heavens. Those are our fathers. And we are in their likeness. All of this is folly. All of it is wicked. All of it is replacing the God whom Paul praises at the end of the verse. Look at his words at the very end. The creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now you may see this and wonder, what's going on here, Paul? We're talking about idolatry. You're marching along. You're, you've got your logic and you're explaining how idolatry works or what idolatry looks like or the different facets of it. And then all of a sudden here he just breaks out the creator who is blessed forever Amen. It is almost as though, listen to this, it is almost as though he can't even stomach the topic of idolatry. It's like, it's like Paul is talking about something so repulsive. It, it, it's almost like there's a vomit reaction in his soul, in his spirit, to the topic he has been addressing. That he must offset that in his mind and in his discourse by praising this amazing God. He erupts spontaneously, impulsively. He erupts in praise. He must break out in praise. 
He must declare the truth as he considers the lies. He must express the praise and gratitude that flow from his new heart in Christ. Let me say this to us. Woe is man. Woe are we in and of ourselves. There is no escape. There's no escape for the human being by himself. You hear this message and you think, I, I don't want that. You need the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God who hovered over the waters. He alone can make your heart new. He alone can give you a new heart that praises God. It is not something manufactured. It's not as though we just start saying words. It's to praise God is the breath. It, it is natural, as natural as breathing to a Christian. And it comes from the Spirit of God. What we need, what, what our children need, what everyone needs is a movement of the Spirit of God on the heart of people to change it. The heart must be changed if it is to turn to the living and true God from this darkness. There is no coming out of this darkness on our own. There is no crawling out of this pit on our own. We're blind, dead, void of understanding. Only the Holy Spirit through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can make an end to our idolatry. For those who are unbelievers, and even now, for those of us, as Paul will later say, who put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. For all of us, it is the Holy Spirit who we need. It is Him whom we depend upon. And apart from Him, there is no good thing. There is, as Genesis describes it, formlessness and void. Darkness covering the face of the earth. Call out for mercy. Trust Christ. Rely on the Spirit, turn to the living and true God. Let's pray. Father, help us, Lord, to know how to put to death the idols, to smash them and crush them, break them, to bury them, to burn them up. Father, show us how, as Christians, that our hearts might be as Paul's praise is at the end of verse 25. The Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. May that be the song of our hearts, Lord. Help us, we pray. Turn sinners idol worshipers to yourself, through Christ our Lord. Amen.